You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. What I wanted to do today, and I don't know exactly how long it'll take, uh, so there may be other things on the agenda, but for sure what I want to do, and I've kind of done this before, but never in this way, and since you know we're at this point in the off season. We're going to dissect something that's our... We're going to exhume the body for the third time and uh, kind of dissect it again. It's going to be a little sloppy, but, um, you know, that's what you got to do. Sorry for the visual. At least I visualized it. I, I wish I had not. Anyways, I want to look at the Matt LaFleur effect a little bit. Because the narrative in my own brain is something to the effect of he was, you know, sort of a low-level guy... Back in, you know, 2008 with the Texans. Gary Kubiak, Kyle Shanahan is the offensive coordinator. He's been doing that thing for a while. But then he takes a jump to quarterback coach with the Washington Redskins, and they're doing all right. Then he goes to Notre Dame, quarterback coach. You know, he's fine there. Then he goes to Atlanta as the quarterback's coach, and that's when he kind of makes his money. Because that, you know, for like one time, Matt Ryan is, I mean, it's a big deal. Matt Ryan, to this day has the best best year of his entire career. That's pretty significant, but it also has, you know, you got to kind of look at it and say, okay, well, that was probably a lot to do with the offensive system as a whole, not so much Matt LaFleur teaching him how to be a quarterback, but still, it's pretty impressive. Then he's the offensive coordinator for the Rams, and even though he's not really playing, calling plays, and it's more Sean McVay than anything, the Rams completely turn around and are dominant. They go from 4-6 and six to 11-5 and five in one year. But again, Sean McVay, whatever. So the real test for me, and this is what I said when we were kind of looking at coaches and I basically just dismissed Sean, uh, Matt LaFleur outright, is that we need to see what he can do on his own. He goes to Tennessee. Tennessee's offense actually goes backwards, statistically at least, which is kind of where we're going to go with this. And that just kind of tells you everything you need to know. Maybe, maybe not. But in other words, the, the most telling thing, the most important thing to look at is his least impressive part of his resume. The more impressive you want, you kind of have to go back to him having less and less of an impact. And in fact, even if you look at pro football focus and get away from the statistics, even PFF says that Tennessee's offense t- took a bit of a step backward. So anyways, without delving too much into it, um, that's sort of what I want to look at the Matt LaFleur effect. And I want to look at it not just statistically because, you know, statistics are just sort of a compilation of output from individual players, right? It depends who's on the field, who you're playing, all that different stuff. It doesn't really give you a full picture. I mean, Blaine Gabbert played eight games. What else do you want me to say? So I want to, as per usual, take a look at Pro Football Focus and see 
kind of what they had to say about it, or what they saw. But anyways, before we get there, as per usual, if you have any questions, if you have any comments for the show, please call or text 608-501-0718. If you're interested in getting yourself a sweet, sweet Packernet t-shirt, supporting the podcast in some sort of way. Speaking of, thank you very much to Mark um, in Germany right now. Appreciate the support, man. Or if you want to jump into the Facebook group, be sure to click on the link of links, because that link will take you to a bunch of links that give you everything and anything you'd ever need to know. Anyways, let us take our break, and we'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. First of all, before I forget, I did my first 2020 NFL mock draft. You can find that over at nflbigboard.com. See who I gave the Green Bay Packers. It's a lot of fun. I like doing that. But all right. Um, on the surface, as I said, the overall grade given to the Tennessee Titans was, I mean, basically exactly the same, but it did go backwards, which is a problem when you're looking at a Tennessee Titans team that's not very good. They go out and get a guru who's going to come in as the offensive coordinator and call all the plays, control all the offense. You would expect a spike in production. Instead, the grade goes from 74-something to 73-something. Again, it's basically stagnated, but the problem is I'm expecting a massive jump, and there wasn't one. But as I said, similar to statistic, the grades are basically just a, you know, I don't know, add it up and, and divide it as far as grades go. So you could have a bunch of negative counteracting, a bunch of positive, whatever. Well, when you actually look at the offensive breakdown by player, it's pretty apparent um, the situation. Tennessee in 2017 essentially had nine guys that you could say were good zero that were very good, and zero that were elite. That's sort of a problem for this team. And I actually think, in general, that's a problem for Tennessee. I think they generally have a pretty complete roster, as in no real holes. They do have holes, but not nearly as many as a lot of other teams. They just completely lack top-end talent on, on offense, at least. Defense, they at least have Jarrell Casey. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. If you look at 2018, that spike that I wanted to see but didn't see in my cursory look, it actually kind of exists. The highest grade anybody got in 2017 was Delaney Walker, and he got a grade of 78.2. In 
In 2018, that would have been the fifth best grade for the entire team. By the way, Delaney Walker improved his grade. He didn't play very much, so it's somewhat unfair. And actually, well, okay, one of them doesn't really belong <laughs> on this list. So he would have been the, it would have been the fourth best grade. One of them was a safety that came in and played for a, a snap, so that doesn't count. But what is interesting is there are three players that kind of stand out. One is Delaney Walker. Again, he didn't play very much, but his grade went up. The Maybe the most interesting, possibly, whatever, the, the backup tight end, Michael Pruitt. He didn't play as much as Luke Stocker, but he played in 14 games, nearly 200 snaps, got a grade of 80.6. This guy has never been able to find a team anywhere doing anything. Played for Minnesota for a year, gone. Actually, it's about a year and a half, I guess. Then he goes to Chicago, he does nothing. Then he goes to Houston, and it's real bad. Then he comes to Tennessee under LaFleur in a team that really seems to like running backs and, and tight ends, and he kind of blows up a little bit. He got sort of to a slow start. I mean, he was average for about half the season, but he wasn't bad. But then starting in week 11 against Indy, he just kind of blows up. Something just kind of clicks with this guy. I don't know if LaFleur figures out how to use him or something just kind of clicks in his brain. I don't know what happened, but he kind of starts going nuts. Now, as a receiver... His stats aren't exactly off the charts, which is why I'm kind of relying on grades a little bit, because it's a matter of, again, we see the one little thing that we see on camera, what about all the other stuff that he does when we're not focusing on that one play? But we're talking about one target, one reception, 19 yards, one target, one reception, 13 yards, etc., etc. But if we're looking at his grade and how he graded out as a player overall, receiver, um, blocker, etc., 83.7, 76.2, 59.8, 92one against Jacksonville. Then he falls off to 44.7 against the Giants. Bad game. Then 92 against Washington. Two elite games in three weeks. Then 69.4. Again, he was not a guy that really made a big impact on the stat sheet, but just all around was pretty solid. Mediocre to good run blocker, pretty good pass blocker, and pretty decent receiver, which, you know, whatever you see good receiver, not a lot of stats. The only thing that comes to mind is he was doing his job. He wasn't getting the ball. There was a decent amount of Gabbard in that stretch. But that's not really all, because if you look at the guy, and um, this was the guy who was tied for sixth best, essentially compared to last year, his grade was as good as Taylor Lewan, who was the second best player on their entire offense. But it was, again, tight end Luke Stocker. And again, one of the interesting things about this isn't just that a tight end did decent. I mean, 76.4 is good. It's not great. The thing that stands out is this is Luke Stocker's second best season ever. And the last time he ever did anything even remotely good, his only other good season, was in 2012 against Tampa, or uh, excuse me, with Tampa Bay. He had two years where he was kind of like decent. His, uh, you know, rookie season, he was basically good. 2012, he takes a step. He's, you know, kind of real good. Not real good. It's 77. I guess, you know, not quite very good, but high good. So real good kind of makes sense. But the interesting thing is, even then, the only thing that was really redeemable about him was his run blocking. He got a very good run blocking grade. His pass blocking grade was mediocre, and as as a receiver, he was mediocre. And here's the most interesting thing. Here are his his receiving grades throughout his entire career. 
55, 60, 45, 47, 50, 54, 55. You know what it was in 2018? 78. The next highest grade he's ever had as a receiver was 60, dead average. He's only had one season where he was even average. Every other season was below average or terrible. One season with Matt LaFleur, after Delaney Walker goes out, 78. Interestingly enough, he actually tied the amount of targets he had in 2012 as well. It's actually almost identical to his 2012 season. In, in 2012, 21 targets, 16 receptions for 165 yards and one touchdown. 2018, 21 targets, 15 receptions, 165 yards, exactly the same, and two touchdowns. 2012, he had 10.3 yards per reception. 2018, 11 yards per reception. 2012, his longest reception was 33 yards. This was 31 yards. 2012, 8 first downs. 2018, 10 first downs. I mean, it's like an identical season. But but very, very interestingly, it's, it's nuts because it was by far his best receiving year. And we're talking about a guy who's, what is he, 30, 31? Just turned 31? It was his best year as far as his drop grade, meaning, you know, less drops. Highest graded fumble year, so I guess less fumble. I don't know how you grade that if a guy doesn't fumble. How do you have variance in that? It was also his best pass blocking year ever. Now, it wasn't a perfect season. Again, this grade is, is an average. Basically, he started the year relatively strong, and he ended the year very strong, and in the middle was just a whole bunch of mediocre. This was not a, you know, blowing anybody out of the water kind of performance, but if you look at 2017 at 61, what do you think that was? You think it was all perfectly average? No, it was, you know, a couple good games, a lot of mediocre games, and some horrible games. His worst game of the entire season was in the 50s. He didn't have any 40s, 30s, 20s, tens, teens, single digits, nothing. I'm getting a little bit excited just for the, the simple matter of the fact that we know tight ends are featured a lot in this offense, and we understand how they're featured in this offense. They're, in a lot of ways, the biggest decoy on the entire team. They're in tight, and they're either going to block or they're just going to be you know, flying off somewhere else usually flowing against the flow of the linebackers. You know, Again, as I've said a thousand times, you go one way and it's it's the the team's going to bite you because they're going to be going in the opposite direction. But again, if you don't run really fast in the direction that you're running, you're going to get bit three out of four times. But that one time, you're going to get bit because you did flow fast in that direction. And it's, it, whatever, I'm not going to get back into that. But the reason I'm getting excited is, is the Green Bay Packers have, and Mike McCarthy have always loved tight ends. Love, 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 love. He never had any plan I shouldn't say that. That's not fair. It just didn't work. He had a plan. He, he understood tight ends. He was a tight end. He loved, loved, loved tight ends. There were, there, there were teams where the Packers carried, what do we have, like four or five tight ends the one year? It was like, what in the world? But the guy just loved tight ends. He talked incessantly about how important they are, how pivotal they are. But it's like he understood it conceptually, but he couldn't find a way to make it actually work. And, you know, as much as we want to blame the players themselves and say, well, he just never really had any talent. I don't think so, man. There have been some good players. And and granted, a lot of the quote-unquote good players are older, over-the-hill type guys that we brought on. But Jimmy Graham tanked when he came here. It wasn't just that, oh, look, he's continuing to descend. No. He was elite with the Saints. He goes to Seattle. He was good with Seattle. He comes here. He was terrible. Mercedes Lewis was you know, hot and cold. He got a reputation, as I said, for being 
an elite blocker. I don't think he was always an elite blocker. As I said, he had years where he wasn't great in any category. He had years where he was a great pass blocker, terrible run blocker, years where he was a great run blocker, terrible pass blocker. But he comes to Green Bay and just had a terrible year. Also didn't really play very much. And we also had Kendricks, who I, you know, from the get-go, I said probably wasn't going to contribute very much just because I don't think he's ever really been that good. And the whole, well, he'll get be awesome because he's got Aaron Rodgers, he's never had a court. That's never worked. That's never really been a thing. With the exception of a couple great, you know, runs with Aaron Rodgers and Jared Cook, obviously the catch that jumped into your mind immediately against Dallas, that kind of a play doesn't happen with too many other quarterbacks but Aaron Rodgers. But still, the point is, look look at the people that I'm talking about. We know Matt LaFleur went in and built this offense around Delaney Walker and by default around the tight ends. Delaney Walker had basically one game, it was a great game, and then he got hurt and he was out the rest of the year. Here's the good thing, though. They have no tight end depth. They have no talent at tight end outside of Delaney Walker, who is a phenomenal tight end. Matt LaFleur didn't make excuses. He just made it work even with subpar talent. And here's the thing. We don't have Delaney Walker, but Jimmy Graham is better than Luke Stocker. Mercedes Lewis is better than Luke Stocker. Jay Sternberger is probably going to be a lot better than Luke Stocker. Matt LaFleur came into Tennessee and said the tight ends are going to be the focal point of this offense, and they were. They lost Delaney Walker, still managed to get production out of the tight ends. And it's not even so much production. It wasn't that great. But again, what are the grades a reflection of? The grades are a reflection of film study. It's the other aspect of it. You've got the statistics, and you've got, quote-unquote, the film, which is looking beyond the stats and actually watching them on each and every play and saying, how well are they doing their job? By the way, he was not the only, these were not the only two, or I should say three, tight ends on the roster. There was also Anthony Fersker. Anthony Fersker was a 2018 undrafted free agent. Very little, basically zero expectations for Mr. Anthony Fersker because he's an undrafted free agent. His overall grade for the season was 69.6. It was basically good. For reference, our highest graded tight end on the entire team was Robert Tanyan at 60.8. His grade, 69.6. Their fourth best tight end graded out better than our number one tight end. He started seeing snaps in week two immediately after Delaney Walker went out. Not the greatest run blocker in the world, but his pass blocking grade, 81.5. His receiving grade, 70.4. The Packers receiving grades, the highest was 59.8. Jimmy Graham, less than 60. And as a matter of fact, the, um, the six lowest receiving grades, four of the six lowest were tight ends. Every single one of our tight ends were at the bottom. The only reason that it's not 4 for 4 is because Jay Kumaro and Jamon Moore were mixed in. The tight ends in Green Bay were terrible. But again, you get what you emphasize. Matt LaFleur went to Tennessee and said the tight ends will be a focal point. And again, he doesn't just say, I want them to be a focal point. We heard How many times did we hear, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, and it just doesn't happen? Even when I disagree with what they want, still, fine, go do it. Well, we got to get the ball to Devontae more. Then do it. We got to get more more big plays out of this offense. Okay, do it. I don't agree. I would like you to hit the check down four yards down the field instead of trying to launch it 40 yards every single time. 
But if you're going to do it, then do it. Not just Aaron Rodgers, but Mike McCarthy, same thing. After watching another horrible game where we cannot just hit a check down three yards down the field, and I'm sitting here waiting for the press conference to hear why in the world they won't throw the ball short, why when every other team, when you got Mitch Trubisky tearing up the league by just dumping it off four inches in front of him and letting the guy run, and we've got a guy like Aaron Jones who's absolutely tearing it up when he gets an opportunity like four times a game, is standing wide open with six yards of separation in every direction, why he doesn't get the ball. And the only thing I hear at the at the at the podium is what? Well, we got to get bigger plays. No, dum-dum, you don't. But again, fine, then do it. Well, we, we got to figure out a way to get the tight ends, you know, going. Then do it. Point is, they can't. Mike McCarthy had no answers. He couldn't do it. He knew what he wanted to happen. He didn't know how to make it happen. Mike McCarthy loves tight ends. He, 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 why do you think we keep going out year after year after year after year after year investing in tight ends? Look how much we've invested, not just in getting big names, but how much money, $10 million, $11 million for Jimmy Graham? Oh, my goodness. And what do we get for it? Worst receiver on the team, Mercedes Lewis. Second worst receiver on the team, Lance Kendricks. Fourth worst receiver on the entire team, Robert Tanyan. Sixth worst receiver on the entire team, Jimmy Graham. Alan Lazard graded out higher as a receiver than all the tight ends. Danny Vitale. Capri Bibbs. I mean, come on, man. What? But again, no need to get upset about 2018 because we've got Matt LaFleur now. And again, it's not just that he knows how to get production. Look who he got production from. Jimmy Graham, Mercedes Lewis, Robert Tanyan, although I'm not a, a you know, I'm not as big of a Robert Tanyan fan as everybody else, but Robert Tanyan's better than just about everybody I've mentioned so far in Tennessee. Mercedes Lewis, Chase Sternberger, I would take any one of those guys over any one of the tight ends in Tennessee with the exception of Delaney Walker. And look at what they were able to get out of it. Again, not necessarily production, but just just the absolute boost out of nowhere. And it's not a fluke. It's not like one guy, Luke Stocker, just had one really good year out of you know his entire career, which even so would be impressive. Everybody, an undrafted free agent, comes in and has a good season. He had two games where he graded out as very good against Indy, 14 total snaps, and against the Jets, where he had 18 total snaps. So it's not like he just played three snaps in that game. He was in pretty consistently. As a tight end, as the number three tight end, an undrafted free agent comes in and does really well. And in both games, it was his receiving grade that, you know, did well. And I don't know exactly how they go about grade. And by the way, um, I'm going to start watching them, but you probably should too if you're curious about it. You know, whether you like PFF or hate PFF, it's important to at least be informed about why you like or hate them. They're starting to release videos on YouTube explaining how they grade. And by the way, I was just listening to a guy uh, basically who built the whole system. He's an analytics guy that was brought in. But basically, he's created like a 350-page document that documents how each grade happens. So as much as I like guys like Andy Herman and whatnot that go about doing grades, I try to do grades. There is no way in the world they have anything even close to the system PFF uses as far as being exactly precise on how they grade and why. So when it says... This, this is why I just look at it, see the grade, and, and trust it. Not that it's 100% accurate, because it's somewhat subjective. 
But as I talked about with the quarterbacks, even then it's not all that subjective because it's almost based on production, right? How good of a how how good of a grade a quarterback gets depends on the throw he just made. And it's not just an arbitrary that was pretty good. Again, remember, they have zones. If it's exactly in the numbers, that is a certain grade. If it's outside the numbers in this range, which is about mid-thigh to, you know, I don't know, mid-chest, that's another range. They have an exact range of where the ball is that that decides what exact grade that ends up being. It's just it's kind of crazy. So the even even the grades are based somewhat on production. It's just not production that shows up on a stat sheet. And likewise, I'm sure with with tight ends and receiving grades, it's not just arbitrary. Well, that was a pretty good route. You know, they're looking at you know precise separation and all this kind of stuff. Which, by the way, I'm guessing Tennessee tight ends got quite a bit of separation because of the scheme. Which, again, maybe that doesn't have anything to do with the tight end, and I made that up, by the way. I don't know if that's the case. But still, I don't care. Whether you got open because you're an elite tight end or whether you got open because you were schemed open, if this receiving grade translates to he was open, I want that to happen to the Green Bay tight ends. Almost especially if it had nothing to do with their actual talent. Because we know guys like Jimmy Graham and Mercedes Lewis are kind of getting up in age. But anyways, it, it, it wasn't exactly perfect, however. Uh, John U. Smith... Uh, was not very good. He could not be uh, dragged hard enough <laughs> to get his grade up. But still very, very impressive overall as far as the, the tight end group. And actually, if, if we're being completely honest here, Janu Smith was a third-round pick, but his grade actually did go up. As bad as his grade was, it was a 55.2. In 2017, it was a 53.6. So he's been a disappointment. But even Janu Smith didn't go backwards. He went forwards. He got better. But that's not exactly all, because it's not just based on that. The, the other things that you have an expectation for when you think about Matt LaFleur, it's not just tight ends, but it's also quarterbacks. He was a quarterback's coach, and if you look at it, Marcus Mariota wasn't great, and we already know Blaine Gabbert was terrible. He was the lowest-graded player on this team, so there was no real magic from Matt LaFleur when it comes to Blaine Gabbert. However, even Marcus Mariota, who played the season hurt, and according to... Um, I don't know if it was our GM or the president, but when they were asked about the bad season or whatever, he kind of just shrugged it off and mentioned how Marcus Mariota didn't have feeling in his hand. That's how bad of an injury he had. He's playing with a lack of feeling in his arm. And although it was similar to last year, despite the injury, he actually had a slightly higher grade than 2017. In a year in which you would expect regression he got better. So again, it, the the ultimate narrative in my mind that Tennessee went backwards, it's just not really here, especially in the areas where you would expect to see it. If, if you just hear the term, they went backwards. Matt LaFleur came in. He wanted to focus on tight ends. The tight ends got unbelievably better. He comes in as a quarterback's guy. His quarterback gets injured. And despite the injury, he did play a little bit better. He didn't have an elite spike, but, you know, again, it's, it's kind of a wash. Just like the whole season essentially was a wash because everybody got hurt. When, when the guy you build the offense around, Delaney Walker, gets hurt after week one and Marcus Mariota is hurt all year and Blaine Gabbard is your backup, I'm not really sure how in-depth you can go as far as saying how good of a job did Matt LaFleur do. But the, the ultimate question of did the quarterback get better or worse, the fact of the matter is he got better. And he actually played well despite being hurt. Missing several games and playing hurt, he actually got better and had his best season ever. 
Again, basically the exact same as 2017, but I'm taking it as a win because it is still better. And in 2017, he played a full season. In fact, one of the the biggest differences that stands out right away when you compare um, his four seasons in the league is his completion percentage. 2015, it was 62.1. 2016, it was 61.2. 2017 was 61.8. 2018, 68.9. So basically 62, 61, 61, 69. Something else to take note of, and I, I did notice this right out of the gate, especially when I went, when I went back and watched week one of the Tennessee Titans because I kind of wanted to see how they looked, you know, the first week. And it, it was it was pretty sloppy, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was beautiful seeing just how many guys were just open and how the system worked. But as far as guys knowing what they were doing, it was, it was problematic. And I, I think we need to expect that in week one, uh, having a hard time getting to the line of scrimmage and calling plays in time and, and guys being confused and all that. But one thing I noticed was the offensive line was terrible. It was so bad. And this isn't a terrible offensive line. But if you look at his sacks... And keep, keep in mind, he has less dropbacks because of the injury in 2018 than he did in 2015, 16, and 17. So he, he played less than any other season. 2015, 39 times he was sacked. 2016, 23 times. 2017, 37 times. 2018, 42 times. Despite playing less than he had in all three seasons, he was sacked more times. So he was getting pretty brutalized. But again, and that's something I'm a little bit concerned about. I'm sure, I know David Bakhtiari is about as good as they get. I'm not super worried about that. But sticking with the narrative of you get what you practice, when you put so much emphasis on running the ball, you're putting less emphasis on pass protection. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be bad, but you know, if, if that adage is true, you're not going to be as good at pass blocking as maybe you were last year. Again, you know, when you've got guys that have been around for a long time, Bakhtiari, Lindsley, uh, Balaga, you expect some level of consistency. But again, it's a different offensive scheme. It, it, it might be not great, especially when we're talking about slower and longer developing plays with the outside zone play action. What does that mean? Well, you know, w- when you run that, you have to run to the outside and meet the running back. So that takes a little bit of a while. And then you got to loop all the way back around. So even if the offensive line isn't better, the slower, longer developing plays could add tack on a couple extra sacks. And uh, one of my favorite stats of this whole thing here, um, 2016, I'm skipping 2015 for effect. 2016, 25 throwaways. 2017, 21 throwaways. 2018, 13 throwaways. It was cut in half from 2016. Yes, less dropbacks, but not that many less. About 90, 90 less. Still, cut it in half. I want less throwaways because I want to focus a little less on going deep every single play and focus on, hey, look, there's a guy wide open. Let's give him the ball. 13 only. What did Rodgers have? 55? He probably had 13 throwaways in a game. I got to look now. <laughs> he, he didn't have 13, but he did have nine throwaways against San Francisco. Mariota had 13 on the season. Rodgers had nine in week six. He had 15 throwaways in weeks five and six against Detroit and San Francisco. Again, I fully understand Mariota didn't play a full season, but just think about that for a second. Mariota, under Matt LaFleur, had less throwaways the entire season than Aaron Rodgers had in weeks five and six. They actually had... (laughs) Aaron Rodgers had 13 throwaways in his first three weeks. Chicago, Minnesota, and Washington. He had 13 throwaways. That's wild, man. That is wild. But all in all, Marcus Mariota had a decent year. And I'm not looking for 
LaFleur to recreate Aaron Rodgers, but if he can, you know, I mean, if we can get a little bit of a boost, I think I'm good with that. Not that he really needs one. What was his grade last year? They gave him a grade of 89.7. Basically elite. But yeah, I mean, if, if you want to give him a bump up to like 91, that'd be cool. <laughs> I'm not going to be mad about it. But again, I'm just going through and looking at it more intentionally rather than just looking at offense and going, eh, they went backwards. Right? What's part of the reason they went backwards? Well, Marcus Mariota played part of the season. Blaine Gabbert was terrible and played even more of the season. There you go. A little more context for you. But all right, adding on to that, we know Matt LaFleur is good with quarterbacks. We know that he emphasized tight ends and that generally the Kyle Shanahan offense emphasizes tight ends. They did really well. They took a massive leap. What else do we know? The run game, right? The, the run game as a whole. The number one player on this entire team was Derrick Henry. 87 was his grade. Almost elite. Now, Derrick Henry hasn't been terrible, but he has not really been super fantastic. Full disclosure, and I wish I was doing the podcast so I could have said it, but I was, I was as I've probably mentioned on here, I was very anti-Ezekiel Elliott when he came out. I didn't necessarily see him as an elite prospect, and I wanted everybody to see that he wasn't that good, and then he went to Dallas, and it was like, well, now nobody's ever going to see he's not good now because he's got Dallas's offensive line. I could run behind Dallas's offensive line. Well, just for the record, Derrick Henry has graded out higher than Ezekiel Elliott two of the last three years. Actually, it's been the last two years. Ezekiel Elliott's first year when they had the best offensive line anyone's seen in about 15 years, that was the only time he graded out higher than Derrick Henry. Anyways, just thought I'd throw that little tidbit out. Still, the jump that you see from Derrick Henry, again, the level of excitement that that gives me. 2016 graded out 67, right? Pretty average. I guess you could even call it above average. 2017, he takes another step, 73. Good. 2018, 87. And the biggest leap was, you know, because it's accumulation of a lot of different grades, and he's a very good pass blocker. 83.7 was his pass blocking grade. Here's the thing. He's always been a very good pass blocker. 76.5 in 2017, 81.4 in 2016. He's always been very good. His run grade went from 62.9 to 76.1 to 87.9. This last year was his first year breaking 1,000 yards, despite having, you know, I don't know, what is it, uh, 13 less snaps than 2017. Because his yards per carry in 2016 was 4.5, 2017 4.4, 2018 4.9. 4.4 and 4.5 is, is fine. 4.9 is getting up into the holy cow category. right? That's the Aaron Jones, I mean it's not quite, but that's it's getting up. You get up into the fives, that's a good year. His touchdowns went from 5 to 6 to 12. Again, it's not that, oh well they, they let him run more. No man, he, he had less snaps than 2017. Doubled his touchdowns. His first down production, 29, 44, 51. How about chunk plays, 10 plus yards, 2016, 13, 2017, 24, 2018, 30. Yards after contact, 290, 669, 905. Yards after contact per attempt, 2.64, 3.17, 4.21. Longest rush, 22 yards, 75 yards, 99 yards. Avoided tackles, 15, 39, 45. And his fumbles went from 0 to 2 to 1. So, you know, cut his cut his fumbles in half from last year. So, again, Matt LaFleur comes in. He's good with quarterbacks. Quarterback does better than you would expect. For a guy who was injured the whole year, you would expect him to go backwards. He took a, you know, shuffle step forward. He comes in and builds the offense around tight ends. All the tight ends have 
really good years with the exception of Jonu Smith, who's just not good, but he actually did get a little better than last year. And a bunch of no-name guys who have been not good for a very long time, with the exception of an undrafted free agent who you'd expect to be terrible was good. All of them got a lot better. Went from being kind of bad to kind of really good. And then you look at the run game, which is a major emphasis of this offensive scheme, and the running back just has a fantastic year where he just explodes onto the scene as a major factor and a major player in the NFL uh, running back group. So again, LaFleur comes in and says, this is what I want out of this team, and he got what he wanted. And I think that's the biggest thing more than anything. Because you got to take things in context of what he had to work with. And what did he what did he have to work with last year? Nothing. I mean, again, they, they've got decent players everywhere, but who's their, their real studs on this team? So when you look at that and you say the, the Packers have better players, there's no question in the world that the Packers' offense is loaded with a lot more weapons than Tennessee has. We have better tight ends, better wide receivers, a much better quarterback, and a better offensive line and, I think, a better running back. If LaFleur comes in and says, I want this to happen, and he's able to actually make it happen, as opposed to just saying, we're, we're shooting for this. And by the way, again, I don't want to trash McCarthy, because there was a stretch of about three straight years where he said, we want to get better in this area, and we did. It was, it was almost like magic. I don't even remember exactly what it was. I know running the ball was what, that was back in like the Eddie Lacy days. So whenever that was, it was like a three-year strip, probably back in the 2014-ish era. But he made declarations three years in a row. And I remember when he said it, it was like it just happened. And I think that was actually Eddie Lacy's first year. He said, we will be better at running the football. And it, it was like, yeah, right, dude. We've been trying to run the football for a long time. We're not good at it. And we were pretty good at it. So there was a time, again, there was a time when he was really good at stuff. And, and even saying, I want this out of my team. And he got it out of that team. It just got to the point where he's just not getting what he wants. Again, though, point is, Matt LaFleur says, as a brand new coach, brand new offensive coordinator, says, I want this out of this team. He shows up, boom. I want the tight ends, boom. Massive production. I want to be able to run the ball. Derrick Henry blows up. Despite saying, I want this particular tight end in particular to be really good, and then he gets hurt after week one, or during week one, it still works. And a lot of that has to do not so much about even practice, because, you know, if you practice around Delaney Walker and he goes away, you're in trouble. And if you haven't been practicing these other tight ends, you're in trouble. I think the reason a lot of this works is because it's actually built around the scheme. And that's going to be massively beneficial. If it's just this scheme comes in and makes tight ends look better and, and running backs look better because it's just a more player-friendly scheme. And this scheme that, that came in and, and made Matt Ryan the best quarterback in the NFL for that one year. The scheme that had made Jared Goff go from being a potential bust on this garbage team to being a really quality quarterback on one of the best teams in the NFL, um, that system, that's coming to Green Bay. And again, if that means that he has the ability to take that scheme and implement it and make it work, even for Tennessee, who doesn't really have a lot of tools to work with, if he can get that level of production, that level of growth out of guys like Jimmy Graham, Mercedes Lewis, Robert Tanyan, Jay Sternberger, if he can get that level of production out of Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams and Dexter Williams, for that matter. In other words, if Aaron, and that's another benefit, if it's, if it's more scheme-oriented, in which the scheme is going to take care of a lot of it, but then how the level of, of talent on that player is going to make a big difference, which is why a guy like Derrick Henry takes it to the next level, because he's not just some 
random, you know, sixth round guy that you're plugging in. He's a second round pick. He's a really talented guy. But again, even if Aaron Jones goes down, which is terrible, and we hope he doesn't because he has the potential to be, you know, I mean, he, he could be, as far as running goes, top five, top three, possibly the best in the NFL. Not saying I'm, I'm betting on that. I'm just saying it's possible. You're taking a guy who's already running more yards per attempt than anybody else. If you just give him as many attempts as anybody else, he's going to have more yards than everybody else. That's pretty basic mathematics. I'm not just being a homer. Yard, that's why yards per attempt is so important. If you give him more attempts, he has more yards than everybody. Then you add in the scheme, you add in everything else, whatever. But the point is, if he gets hurt, there's reasonable expectations that Dexter and Jamal come in and they do well. Not just, you know, okay, getting those three yards, maybe four on occasion. I'm talking about they come in and actually do a pretty good job. And especially with Jamal, we know he's a good pass blocker. So he he can kind of come in and hold his own. And if we can get him running four and a half yards a carry... That's a beautiful thing. The other thing that it does is it takes a lot of pressure off the GM to have to find a stud. We don't have to go into the 2019. You know, if Aaron Jones gets hurt again and we're thinking, man, we need better, uh, more reliable running back. We're not this Aaron Jones thing isn't going to work out. You don't have to go get Travis Etienne in the first round because we need a dynamic runner. No, man, we're good getting mid-round guys. Dexter and Jamal can hold it down. I mean, we'll, we'll grab an undrafted free agent to back him up. Because the scheme takes care of a lot of it. Same with tight ends. We don't have to go get uh, Albert Okwegbanam in the first round if Jay Sternberger doesn't turn, you know, doesn't pan out. Well, if he doesn't, then it's the scheme isn't necessarily working. But you, you get what I'm saying. It takes the pressure off to where you don't have to find certain elite players, and you get to the point where you can just find guys that are good enough and able to execute a system, as opposed to the Mike McCarthy system, which is you need to be better than everybody on every play. Everybody needs to be Devontae Adams. And look what happens when you're not Devontae Adams. It doesn't work, right? I mean, we saw Equinemius and Marquez have success at times, but overall, it didn't work. That's why there were so many throwaways. Devontae Adams is is good in, in the Mike McCarthy system because the Mike McCarthy system is you have to dominate the guy in front of you on every play. And Aaron, Devontae Adams is one of the only people in the NFL that could actually pull that off. But if we can have a system in which guys like Marquez and EQ can just thrive because they're good enough and Aaron and, and you know Jamal Dexter and Aaron can thrive because they're good enough and and you know Mercedes Jimmy and Jason Tanya are can thrive because they're good enough then we can try to focus on just filling holes focus on the offensive line a little bit maybe get a little bit more depth at tight end but again we don't need to overinvest in certain positions because the scheme takes care of it, because Matt LaFleur is going to make sure that he's getting the absolute maximum production out of guys who who really just need to do what they're told. But I tend to think it's encouraging, and I, I, I just look forward to going back and, and continuing to watch that Tennessee Titans team. Again, week one I thought was actually awesome. Um, as dysfunctional as it looked at times, and as much as they struggled, for example, in the run game, which I thought was strange, the offensive line just could not block. They had a lot of problems with... Um, you know, again, trying to get to the line, uh, communication issues, you know, they couldn't break the huddle because were, you could see people asking questions like, wait, what? And then, you know, we'd get to the line and the wide receivers are all talking to each other and yelling at the quarterback, like, what's going on? It was a little dysfunctional, but the, the, the best part about it is even when things went wrong, even when, you know, they try to run the ball and they lose two yards and then they run the ball again and get two yards and it's third and 10, LaFleur would dial up a play and there would be a guy open. And that was it. First down. He would just call the right play at the right time and one of those plays in which you get guys going the wrong way and you get somebody schemed wide open. And again, you just kind of use the defense against itself. 
you understand what kind of a defense they're playing and you just put a guy in, in, you know, pick apart the zone or whatever it is they're playing against you, you just make it work. And he consistently found ways to just move the sticks. If things are going right, they're going right. If they're going wrong, he does something on that third down play that makes it work and that's what the Packers were missing. Could not convert third downs, did not know what to do, didn't know how, even when the defense is doing the same thing over and over and over again, just no solution. I don't know how to, how to you know, combat that. And again, if, if that's really all LaFleur brings, I, I'm, I'm excited for the potential of the team. But anyways, a um, little bit of hope, I suppose. Not that you didn't have any, but I found that to be pretty exciting. Anyways, you folks, enjoy your Wednesday. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye. <laughs>